morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Welcome here. We are uh, in this message series we started last week entitled R-Rated. We're looking at uh, some of what God has restricted and, and why he has done that. Now, if you're watching a uh, preview to, say, an upcoming movie, and you see this not-yet-rated icon pop up, well, you know the reason is because the classification and ratings administration hasn't issued any viewing restrictions yet on this new movie. But this not-yet-rated uh, phenomenon isn't just limited to the movies. We find it on an increasing number of questions and issues in our culture. And like the movie not-yet-rated version, the cultural not-yet-rated phenomenon has a couple of reasons for it. One is uh, that the new issues are coming out, kind of like new movies. Uh, there's new questions and new issues coming out in our culture now all the time, and it's just hard to keep up with the number of new questions that we have to figure out. Is, is this behavior okay, or is this decision right or wrong? There's just a number of new issues that are coming up. And to complicate the number of new issues that are coming up is the fact that when it comes to cultural questions, there is no classification and ratings administration like there is for movies. There's no clear moral authority right now in our culture. And so that's led to not just reasonable debate, but heated debate on all kinds of issues in our culture because there's, there's no group or no, nothing to appeal to in terms of the moral questions. And now the number of new moral questions that we're facing I don't think has ever been higher than it is now, and I think it's just going to continue. I mean, there are a lot of medical questions that we're trying to wrestle with, moral and ethical medical questions. You know, the advances in medicine come with ethical dilemmas often. And these tend to show up either at beginning of life or end of life questions. I mean, we can now identify the signs of birth defects much earlier than we used to be able to, and with greater accuracy. There's still, you know, not certainty, but greater accuracy. And so that's led to a huge debate over the, on the sanctity of life versus the quality of life. Is, is it right to terminate the life of a child because that child has birth defects? Well, I don't think that's right, but a lot of people think it is. And then there's the same kind of questions that come to the end of life. Medical science clearly has added years to our life. But those final years, they can be tough. They can be pretty miserable years. And so is it right to end a painful and miserable and unhappy life early? Well, I don't think so, but a lot of people think it is right. And then there's a the long list of reproduction, reproductive questions that we now face. I mean, there's test tube babies, surrogate mothers, gene splicing, and cloning. Th these are all medical technologies that exist. And there's a, a debate and a range as to how legal some of those things are or are not. I mean, these questions are open. They're unanswered. They come with all kinds of ethical questions that are hotly baited, but never really clearly resolved. Then there are the moral dilemmas raised by technology. You know, is it right to have a self-driving car make the decision to protect the driver at the expense of, say, a pedestrian? Well, we're not really sure. I mean, is it even right to turn those kinds of moral decisions over to software? And as artificial intelligence continues to be developed and, and its capacity expand, it's just going to raise more and more of the kinds of questions of what, what decisions are we okay with a software code answering and which decisions do, as imperfect as we are, do we want to leave in human hands? These are big questions that are out there that we just don't know the answer to. And then there are the increasing number of questions about our sexuality. You know, the number of new sexual categories to consider 
is really pretty astounding. No matter what you think about these issues, wherever you land on this debate, you have to just step back in, in amazement at the number of questions now and issues and categories that we are trying to figure out answers to. Let me just give you kind of a, a brief overview of some of the history of the vocabulary or terms uh, in, the, in the question of sexuality. It was in the 1970s that the term gay replaced homosexual. And then lesbian was added, added in the late 1970s. It was in the 80s that we were introduced to the term bisexual, and then a few years later, the term transgender. And so in 1988, that was the first time that activists began to use the initialism that we're all very familiar with now, and that is LGBT, to kind of capture these four new terms in one initial. But new letters keep being added to this, this list. In 2014, Facebook expanded their gender categories from two, to two used to be male and female, to 58 from 2 to 58. Now, it's just, that's just a, an amazing thing. This past June, uh, in the province of Ontario, our cultural cousins to the north, the Elementary Teachers Federation, now this is Elementary Teachers Federation, offered inclusiveness training, and they tried to capture all of the new letters that have been added recently to LGBT. And so they offered inclusiveness training, and these were the initials that they used, L-G-G-B-D-T-T-T-I-Q-Q-A-A-P-P. Now, I didn't know what all these meant, so I, I had to look it up. Here's what they mean, and I'm only going to do this once. So, <laughs> lesbian, gay, genderqueer, bisexual, demisexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirit, intersex, queer, questioning, asexual, allies, pansexual, and polyamorous. Now, I had to look up what some of these terms mean. Now, I'm not saying this to poke fun at anybody. I'm just giving you the, the context, the historical landscape of, of kind of where we are moving and what's going on uh, as a culture. And so LGBT now is usually uh, listed this way, LGBTQ or LGBTQ plus. Plus indicates, you know, whatever additional letters are added and are going to be added to this. Now, again, whatever you think about the morality of these categories, you have to be amazed at a culture that has shifted so rapidly on so many moral issues. And that's what I want to look at this morning. What, what is going on behind the scenes? We'll tackle some of these questions in the sexual uh, arena in a couple of weeks, but what, what is happening in the culture for this to be even possible? How do you go from two to 58 sexual categories on Facebook in one moment? Well, the shift on the surface is because of a deeper shift in the foundation of our culture. A foundation affects, you can't see it, but affects everything that rests on that foundation. For example, here's a picture of the foundation of this building that you're, we're all standing and sitting on right now being poured about 12 years ago. Everything that you see, you can't see this foundation now, but everything that you see, this building and everything else that sits on it, rests on that foundation. And that's the way cultures are too. Like buildings, they all have foundations. The foundations aren't concrete or still. The foundations are core ideas that you can't see, but they become the anchor of everything that you can see. All of the language, 
All of the behavior, all the values rest on the core foundational ideas that every culture sits on. And so the shifts that we are experiencing on the surface of our culture appear to be very, very rapid, and they are. But the foundational shifts that are driving these surface changes started a long, long time ago. And I want to give you the overview of what's shifted in our foundation that's, that's causing the shifts that we now see above us. I think it's helpful to understand what's going on and not just get emotional and form opinions about what we see, but to really understand what, what's, what's driving this, what's happening, how did this happen, where, where are we at? The first shift that began what we now see was the shift from supernatural to natural. This was a huge shift that occurred from supernatural to natural, and it didn't just affect our culture, it's affected all modern cultures. Colossians 1 verse 16, we read this, for by him, speaking of God, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So what this is saying is that there are two fundamental components, foundational components that make up reality. There is what we can see and there's what we can't see, the visible and the invisible. The word that captures both of these realities is the word supernatural. Super meaning above and natural meaning nature, you know, what normally occurs. So super is the invisible part of supernatural and natural is the visible part of creation. The natural world that we see finds its meaning and its purpose in the invisible world that we can't see. Now, it's very important to understand this. This is what this verse is saying near the end. When it says, all things were created by him and for him. That's, a, that's not just kind of a tack on statement at the end. That, that's a fundamental truth. By him. What that means is, if we agree with this, we now know where we came from. For him. What that means is we now know the purpose for all of this. If we don't understand in the invisible world creating the visible world, we don't think that God brought this about, then we really, we really don't know the answers to those questions. So if we dismiss either the super or the natural part, either one, our perception of reality is off. It, it becomes warped, and it begins to change everything from that point on. For example, if, if super doesn't really matter, doesn't really exist, or it's not that important, what that means is that my life has no basis for meaning or value. The most that I can say, if there's no super, it's just all natural, the most I can say is that I exist. I can't say why I exist. I can't say the purpose for me. I can't say where I came from. I, I can just say I exist. I can't honestly answer any of the big why questions that for some reason we humans keep trying to answer. But without the super, I, I don't have any answers. If, on the other side, the natural is just not that important, not that real, then there's no reason for me to put in any effort to accomplish anything in this world. There's no reason for me to go to work tomorrow. There's no reason for me to build anything here. There's no reason for me to do anything really significant here because, well, this just isn't important. We're just passing time until we get to see God again. So there's no reason to sacrifice or do anything significant here. There's no reason to, for science to learn anything more. That This stuff doesn't matter. So you need to have both in order for life to make sense, really, to the human mind. And this nation, and therefore this culture, was founded 
on a supernatural foundation. I could list all kinds of examples. Let me just mention one. John Quincy Adams, who was our sixth president, the son of our second president, John Adams. But John Quincy Adams said something in a Fourth of July speech in 1837 that could never be said by a president now. He was commenting on the fact that Christmas and the Fourth of July were the two biggest holidays in America at the time. And he offered his thoughts on why Christmas and the Fourth of July were such a big deal in America. This is what he says, quote, Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized a social compact on the, there it is, foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon earth, that it laid the cornerstone of human, human government upon the first precepts of Christianity? That's a pretty astounding statement by John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams. What he's saying is that the Declaration of Independence, in his opinion, now remember, he's the son of John Adams, who together with Thomas Jefferson crafted, I mean, Thomas Jefferson wrote most of it, but was under the suggestion and the initiative of John Adams that the, the Declaration of Independence was written the way it was. And so his son, John Quincy Adams, is saying that this Declaration of Independence that was written by Thomas Jefferson under the influence of his father, John Adams, and signed by the fathers, was built on the foundation of Jesus' teachings. That, that's his assessment of this. So the question then is, what happened? What shifted? Well, the beginning of the shift away from the supernatural really predates the birth of our country. It was already in the works when our country was born and this culture was begun. Many agree that it that one of the dates that kind of marked the beginning of this shift was 1633. That's when the Catholic Church sentenced Galileo to life in prison. Galileo, you may remember, had done the math to prove Copernicus's theory right, and the theory was this, that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around, as it had been thought. Now, this was contrary not to what the Bible taught, but it was contrary to what the church doctrine taught at that time. And the Pope and the church, they were working through reconsidering this new data and hadn't really determined it yet, but things take time with the church back then, as it probably does now. And so they asked Galileo if he could just kind of hold off on his new theories and tone it down a little bit. But Galileo wrote a play in which the main character, character parodied the Pope. It was a play basically making fun of the Pope. And the name of the main character that was the Pope in this play, the name of that character was Simplicio. Now, you don't have to know Italian to know what that means, right? Simplicio means simple-minded or idiot. Now, in this time in history, you don't call the Pope an idiot and get away with it. So, Galileo was arrested mostly because of that play. It was called The Dialogue. But... What's happened in history is most people think he was arrested because of the science that he did. That was partly true, but mostly what really triggered it was this play he wrote calling the Pope an idiot. <laughs> so what happened, though, in history is Galileo's arrest pitted super against natural for the very first time. They used to go together. But now it began. Now, it didn't become widespread, but it began, at least in the thinking of the intellectuals of the day, now there was a crack, and these two seemed to be at odds with each other for the first time. Now, that's not how modern science got its start. 
Isaac Newton, who many agree was the greatest scientist of his day, actually wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. You can find more pages of commentary on Scripture from Isaac Newton than you can on his theories of science. Kepler, who discovered how the planets move, described science as thinking God's thoughts after him. And most of the modern scientists, not all of them, but most of the modern scientists were Christians because they thought God, super, has constructed a natural world that has order and pattern and design because of his order and pattern. And so we can figure these things out. We're thinking God's thoughts after him. So Galileo's arrest was the beginning of this split and this shift. But that one event would never have separated super from natural. And the reason is simply this. Science couldn't answer the biggest question that every human mind asks all the time. And that is, how did we get here? Where did we come from? Well, all of that changed in 1859 when a man by the name of Charles Darwin published his book, Origin of the Species. Now, I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to get into this issue today. This is just a sweep of history. Now, this new theory gave many what they really honestly had been looking for. It was an explanation about where we came from without God. Now, here's what Scripture says that creation says to us. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, things we can't see, His eternal power, His divine nature, they have been visible. They, we can clearly see them. How? Being understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. What it's saying is you can't walk out your front door. You can't look at a sunset. You can't look at a mountain. You, you can't observe creation and walk away thinking, yeah, there's no God. That, you don't have a viable excuse if that's your conclusion. That's the way it's been throughout history. It had been impossible, really to push God to the sidelines of daily life when creation was shouting so loudly about his existence. But now, through the theory of evolution, someone could look at the world and not see God at all. That was something very radical and something completely new. They could see natural processes. Well, they actually couldn't see it. It takes billions of years to see it, and no one has that microscope. So you can't see you can see some evidence of some change, but you can't see the evolutionary process. But through that theory, it, it, it gave people a lens on creation that allowed them to view it without God. In a sense, the megaphone of God now had been unplugged. And gradually over time, the masses shifted their allegiance from super to natural. As modern science continued to advance, we increasingly didn't really feel as much of a need for God, practically. This wasn't one decision. This is a shift, not a sudden earthquake, a shift. For example, it used to be that when you got sick, the first thing you'd do is pray. You didn't want to go see the crazy doctors and the crazy hospitals who were doing bloodletting and all kinds of weird things. So you'd pray. But now with the advances of medical science, what do we do when we get sick? We'll make an appointment, we'll go see the doctor, which I do. And only if that's not working, then maybe do we sign, okay, well, we might as well pray. I mean, that's practically what's happened. And this has happened across the board. I'm not saying you shouldn't go see the doctor. I do that. You should. 
I'm just saying, here's the shift. It's happened across the board. Science and technology have improved our lives so much that, that most now believe, either they really believe this or at least they behave. They may not believe it, but they behave as if God doesn't really exist in the daily details of life. The super part has now faded in the real daily life of our culture. And so the foundation now that's shifted, the foundation of our culture now is naturalism, not supernatural. We are now a naturalistic culture. Naturalism says that only what I can see is real. If I can't see it, it's not real. But you might be asking, how can you say that naturalism is the new foundation when, if you look at the recent polls, 70% of the adults in America claim to be Christians. Christians aren't naturalists, they're supernaturalists. So how can our foundation be naturalism when 70% of the adults are Christians? Well, first of all, the number is in rapid decline. That number is falling rapidly. And what's interesting is that research has been done by several groups that shows that Christians and non-Christians, they think and they act pretty much exactly the same. There's no evidence in the choices they make that they're not making it both from a naturalistic viewpoint. Why is that? Well, last week, if you were here, I talked about how culture is like pickle juice. Now, you start as a cucumber and you're pickled by whatever culture you're raised in. All of the values and the thoughts and priorities of that culture are oozed into the pores of your heart, just like pickle juice into the cucumber that makes it a pickle and pickles it. It flavors everyone who lives in it. And so that's why most Christians who have been raised in this culture are practical naturalists. Not professing naturalists, but practical naturalists. And this shows up in every category. Let me just give you a few examples. Like their non-Christian neighbors, they will live mostly for the American dream. Yes, Jesus said, seek my kingdom first, but that's a, that's a great thing. That's a great idea, and, we, and we're thumbs up on that. But when it comes to the actual decisions we make, we're going to live mostly for the American dream because we've been pickled by that dream. And we're going to order the priorities of our life according to everything that this world has to offer. And what's really interesting is that when it comes to all of these new moral questions, there's only about a 5% difference in what Christians think from what non-Christians think, especially the younger generation. The younger generation is almost an exact overlay. You can't, when it comes to the new moral questions, you, you, the answers that a, a person in their 20s and 30s gives is almost identical to what a person in their 20s and 30s gives who's not a Christian. There's an, almost an exact overlay. And then, here I think is one of the most telling things, is when an American Christian picks up the Bible, which that's a big if, if they actually do pick it up and read it for themselves, that's a pretty unique phenomenon. But even if they do that, and when they do that, they read it in a way that it doesn't radically change the way they live because they see it primarily through the eyes of science. They see it primarily as a natural book with some super parts. Not so much a supernatural work of God and his words speaking life to me and changing me. They don't really see it that way because, well, because of the, the naturalistic pickle juice of our culture. 
So what a professional says to most Christians in America has more weight in solving the problems of their real life than in what the Bible says. So if someone struggles in their marriage, their first thought is, we got to go to counseling, and maybe they should. But rarely do they think, we got to figure out what the Bible says on this. That, that's the second or third thought. And when it comes to being successful in life, most Christians in this culture believe that the degrees that they earn or the ever-evolving list of best practices in the industry that they work in, that that is going to make the biggest impact on the success, not anything the Bible actually has to say about success. And so they learn more about that than they do about what the Bible has to say. Let me summarize it by saying this way. The Bible, for most Christians, is extracurricular. It's not core. It's extracurricular. Because the super part is extracurricular. The natural part is real. And so the Bible is, well, it's, it's an add-on feature to life, to life. That's what extracurricular activity is. It's like, you know, I, yeah, I'll do this and this and this, but when it comes right down to it, if this isn't serving me anymore, if I don't have time for this, it's gone. It's just extracurricular. And that's the way the Bible is for most Christians in this culture. And I'm, of course, I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about Christians. <laughs> the real world you ask most Christians what the real world is, it's what they get up on Monday morning and go to. Not this. Not the Bible. And the naturalistic pickle juice is so strong that most Christians will put the super after the natural. It's natural super now, not supernatural. And what that means is that rather than living for him, as that verse says, God now exists for me. Natural comes first. Super serves natural. And so, in the mind of most Christians, God is evaluated based on how well he's serving us, how well he's working. And if I'm not getting the life I want, then forget God. I don't exist for him. He exists for me. That's functionally the way the line share of Christians really think. It's because of the shift. So the shift, the big shift, was from supernatural to natural. But once that domino was pushed over, it started hitting the dominoes next to it. And I want to describe the next two dominoes it hit. After the shift from supernatural to natural, the next shift is from natural to personal. When the super was eliminated from the natural, the result, the primary result, was that morals, which are a key structural element of any culture, I mean, every culture has its morals. But for us, we no longer had an adequate foundation to support morals. The reason is, you know, science can tell us a tremendous amount about what is and how it works, but it cannot tell us what is right and what is wrong. In order for that, we need a reference point above us. Not science looks at the details. It looks at the material world and uncovers its secrets. But science doesn't tell us what's above us. It doesn't deal with the super. It just deals with the natural. And that's why science can't tell us anything about morals, really. For that, we need an external reference point that's above all of us. We need something, well, super. So we can remove God from the foundation of our culture, but not the need for something super. 
So now that God has been jettisoned, we as a culture went off in search of a new super. And we found it. Guess what it is? It's us. We're the new super. You, me. Now that's a statement. Let me explain how it happened. Because of the great success of science, we began to use the scientific medi, method rather, to study the human psyche. Now that's proven to be pretty challenging. There's a lot of great stuff that has been learned about us as the scientific method has been applied to human behavior. But we're still a pretty unpredictable bunch for all of that research, and therefore it's been challenging. And the reason it's been challenging is that science does its best work when it deals with matter, when it deals with elements that are not free to change and choose. Things like chemistry and gravity, they don't change day by day. You and me, oh yeah, we change. Now, we can be somewhat predictable, but we can be highly unpredictable. We can live a whole life this way, and all of a sudden one day, we can head off a different direction. Gravity doesn't do that. Chemistry doesn't do that. That's why you can use a computer to ever increasingly accurately predict weather. But you can't use a computer to really predict human behavior. Now, this science, the science of us, was given a new label because it was so, well, fluid. It's called a soft science as opposed to, well, the hard sciences like math and physics and chemistry and the other parts that deal with elements that are stable, unlike us, who are, well, we're anything but stable. We're free-choosing radicals, really. The scientific method is not ideally suited for something as soft as us, really. So why was it used, and why has it gained so much authority? Well, the fundamental reason is people have problems that need answers, not just science answers, personal answers. We're in marriages that are falling apart, and we need to know what to do about it. We're struggling with anger, and we can't figure out how to calm down. And we're addicted to something, and we need to get unaddicted. We're struggling with this cloud of depression that just won't go away. We're consumed by anxiety, and it's capturing us, and we don't know what to do about it. Well, insight from God is no longer a serious option in the naturalistic world that we live in. So... Science is all we have left to answer these questions. And as the soft sciences have grown in our culture, something interesting has occurred. We have become the standard of measurement. How we feel has become the standard of measurement. The goal of the soft sciences is just simply to get you and me to be feeling better. We're the standard. And the reason is not any insidious conspiracy plan, it's just the progression that things had to go. And that's because the foundation of scientific inquiry is, is, is primarily two things. It's the, it's the use of observation that is recorded in agreed-upon standards. Now, from there, you form hypotheses and then theories and then laws. But it begins with observation. What's going on here? What's the temperature of this? And 
How much is this way? And what happens when this? And, and you record those observations, not just in your own of feelings and emotions, but in actual objective standards. That's why, for example, data that's fed into a weather computer isn't hot and cold and lukewarm. That's not going to help. No, the data that's fed into a weather computer is in agreed standards like Celsius and Fahrenheit and millibars and miles per hour. Those are agreed upon standards no matter where you are in the world. doesn't matter whether you feel hot or cold. My wife and I often do this. I feel freezing. Well, let's go look at the... It says 72 degrees. How can you be freezing? No, I don't know. I'm freezing. But, you know, if, if it became, you know, how we feel as a standard, that, well, that's, that, that science struggles. They can't do that. So when science turns to the human condition, what standard of measurement can they use? That's the challenge. This is why, for example, one psychologist stands up in court and testifies that the defendant is insane. And then what does the defense do? Well, they get another equally trained psychologist, another equally impressive resume, another equally amazing expert who stands up and says the exact opposite, that the defendant is not, in fact, insane. How can that be? Who's right? Well, where there is no truly objective standard to measure, everybody's right. You can't measure the human psyche by an objective standard. You can't put a thermometer in the mouth of a person and say, oh, yep, they're insane. You can put a thermometer in your mouth, in my mouth, and say, you know, you're sick. Why? Well, because it's 102 degrees, and what's normal? 98.6. But there is no insanity thermometer. There is no happiness thermometer. I don't know if you've heard all these new studies coming out now, the second happiest nation in the world, the top 10 happiest nations in the world. Every study that comes out, if you actually look at the metadata and try to figure out how did they, there's a whole different set of questions and assumptions. They don't know. It's just, they're trying to come up with a happiness thermometer, but it's, it's internal, it's a feeling. So the question then is, how did soft science ever stay in the science game? Well, it had to start treating the soft data of our feelings as something more solid than it really is. We had to become the new standard. Freud was the first one to popularize this, you know, the, really the father of psychology, of the beginning of soft science. And his proposal was that every behavior that we exhibit comes from an unconscious sexual plot that's running in our subconscious. Now, there is not a single soft scientist in existence, a single psychologist in existence that believes that a shred of what Freud said was true. Nobody believes that anymore. They've moved on from that kind of crazy sexual plot thing. But it doesn't matter that Freud was wrong. What he really did is he shifted things. This is a shift that he brought in. What he did is he said, you know, if you want to study the human psyche, there's something subconscious going on in there. His was a sexual plot. Skinner came up with something different, and on and on it goes. But the, the, the agreement now is the reason you do what you do is something inside of you is, is going on, and, and you become the standard. We don't know exactly what it is. We got theories, but we don't know. And this really changed things because behavior used to be something that was evaluated by something outside the individual, like morals. 
But now behavior is evaluated by something inside a person, something personal. We've become the standard. 2 Timothy 4, 3 predicted this. Here's what it says in the New Testament. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, with not, not with any truth externally from God. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will become the standard. What they want will become the new Fahrenheit, the new Celsius, the new measurement. And they will gather a number of people around them that will tell them that what they want is legitimate. And I would say that time has come. Without anything super to point to that is above all of us, you know, we, do ha- we have no, no basis for morals. I have no right to tell you what is right or wrong by myself. Who am I? I'm just a guy. You have no right to tell me. It has to be someone with authority above us. But with God out of the picture, we have elevated something new to fill this super vacancy. Our emotions have become the new God. How I feel now has authority over you. And how you feel has authority over me. That's how you get 58 gender designations on Facebook. You don't ask people to identify themselves by any specific objective standards. You ask people, how do you feel? And so far, they feel about 58 different ways when it comes to their gender and counting. Because that's the way we all are. I mean, how do you feel? Well, check with me in five minutes. It'll be different. It's just the way we are. Now, you don't ask people to identify their gender by any external objective standard, but by who they feel they are. Well, what occurs then is then the number of personal emotional thermometers, well, <laughs> it's endless. It's, it's the same as the number of people and the number of days those people live. And that's led to the next domino, the shift from personal to legal. How do you take how someone feels and make that a moral standard that we all have to submit to? How does that occur? Well, the way it occurs is you turn their feelings into a legal right. And the reason that's so powerful, particularly in the pickle juice of this culture, is because legal rights are at the very foundation of our culture. They were married originally with supernaturalism. It's what makes us free, our rights. And that's why it's the most prominent part of our Declaration of Independence, our document of freedom as a nation and as a culture. The second paragraph, which many people think is the first paragraph, but the most famous line is this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, the framer said, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable, what does that mean? That means that they can't be taken away from us by anyone. No one has the right to take these rights away from us. Why? Because they were given to us by who? by our Creator. That's why no person can take them away from us. But without God, who is to tell anything to anyone? Who's to tell us the difference between what is a right and what is just a personal desire, a want? Well, no one. 
So we're, we're left to make it up then. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're making it up. We're adding more and more rights to protect more and more personal feelings. Let me just give you a few examples. Some of these are legal now. Some are moving towards becoming legal. You know, the right to marry the same sex, that's a new one for us back in 2014, Supreme Court ruling. That's a right now in our nation. The right to affordable housing, well, that's not, that's not a right yet, but people are thinking about it like it's a right. So it's probably just a matter of time before some form of that becomes legal. The right to affordable health care, well, that was the more recent one with Obamacare. All of a sudden, it became a right. Now, would I like affordable health care? Yeah. Is it my right? Well, that's a different question. But it was talked about as if everyone has that right. And once it's a right, boys, Americans, we'll fight for that. Now, there's a lot of debate about the right to die with dignity. Some states have passed laws that allow physician-assisted suicide under this right to die with dignity. Well, for me as a Christian, that my Savior obviously didn't think that was a right. He did not die with any dignity. He died on a cross. Now, hear what I'm saying clearly on this. I'm not saying that personal feelings don't matter and that we shouldn't care about the struggles, the real struggles that people have. These are real people with real emotions, people that God created and God loves. There should be compassion and kindness for everyone. But what I am saying is how I feel, how you feel, should never be allowed to become a law that infringes on everyone else's freedom, that undermines freedom. Julian Huxley was a <clears throat> British atheist, famous atheist, that um, said something pretty interesting. He said this, against all that one might expect, man functions better if he acts as though, there, as though God is there. Now, Julian Huxley, he was also known as Darwin's bulldog. Because when Darwin came up with his theory of evolution, he, well, he dedicated his life and his wealth to promoting the theory of evolution. And he himself said he was shocked at how quickly it took hold. And his conclusion was, this must have been something people were looking for. Because people just, they bought it. But this statement he makes is, is interesting to me. He's admitting that, you know, we really need morals, and so it's, it's better for people to believe in a God, and they, they seem to just run better that way. Well, let me say it this way. I, I used to own a diesel car. What if I told you, if I, was at the, I was at the pump filling up a diesel, and you're on the other side, you're filling up in, with gasoline in your gasoline car, and you ask me, hey, do you like your diesel car? What if I said, it's not a, it's not a diesel car, it's a gasoline car. It just, I found that it runs better on diesel. What would you say? What, why are you insisting on being so committed to that not being a diesel car? Clearly, <laughs> if it runs better on diesel, why would it run better on diesel? It must be a diesel car. The reason we run better on God is why we were created by God. 
pull them out of the foundation of our culture, out of our individual lives, and we don't run so good. Now, for me personally, as I think through where we are as a culture, I know a lot of people just get angry about this kind of thing, or they just, ugh, you know, let's all move to some remote part of the wilderness and build an encampment and wait for Jesus to come get us out of here. But for me, you know what, you know, I think, I can't think of a more exciting time to be alive. I honestly can't. I mean, two things are happening. One is, in the Christian community, you're going to have to decide, I don't know when, but it's getting to the point where you're going to have to decide whether this is real or not, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you more and more. You know what that's going to do? That's going to thin the ranks. And those that remain, they're dead serious about this. That's an exciting bunch to run with. That's one thing that's happening, or will be happening. It's not happening much yet, but it will be. But the other thing is, is that as our culture is turning more and more away from God, on a personal level, things are not going very well for people. In almost every measurement of pain, emotional pain, there's not enough drugs manufactured in the world to, to quell the pain that this world is feeling now. And they're trying, to, they're trying to manufacture as many as they can to stop it. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any help in that area. What I am saying is people aren't running so good without God. And you know what that means? We can be of real help. We can really love people. We can serve people. We can be in a position when people's lives are falling apart. We can be compassionate. We can help and we can share with them something that they might decide to run their lives on, and that might change everything for them. I can't think of a more exciting time to be alive. Scary? Yes. Exciting? Oh, those two often go together. Let's pray. Jesus, I uh, think of the time when you looked out over the crowds, and you said that they were, they were people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And boy, when we look out over our neighborhoods and the places where we work and our families, we see the same thing. People are just harassed. They don't know what's going on. They're helpless. They keep grasping at straws and just cannot figure things out. And that's because, like us, they're sheep. And like us, they need a shepherd. Help us to lead them to you, to love them to you, to serve them to you. And right after you said that, Jesus, you looked out over the, the crowd and you said the harvest is plentiful. There's all kinds of people that would really benefit from knowing this. But the problem is the workers are few. There's so few people that will really love others and serve others and open their mouth to help. And so, like you said, Jesus, we pray that you would increase the number of workers here at Seabreeze so that we might bring life to this part of our culture that is, while they're withering without you. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.